you think of quirky Taiwan, what comes to mind? Singing karaoke in taxis. <laughs> you know, Stash did that recently. That's what I heard. We'll be talking about that and quirky Taiwan in today's show. I'm Natalie So, and I'm Andrew Ryan. First, let's check out the stories on our radar. Taiwan may begin administering its first COVID-19 vaccines next week. That was the word from Health Minister Chen Shih-chung on Wednesday, about a week after Taiwan's first batch of COVID-19 vaccines arrived. Medical workers will be the first to receive the vaccine. A long-awaited COVID-19 travel bubble between Taiwan and the Pacific Island nation of Palau could become a reality before the end of the month, officials say. Palau's ambassador to Taiwan also says that once the two sides have agreed on the fine details of the bubble, Palau's president, Seringel Whips Jr., will take the first flight to Taiwan for a visit. Taiwan has also had contact with Singapore, Vietnam, and Japan about the possibility of a travel bubble. Taiwan's indigenous peoples have launched a campaign for their hunting rights, a tradition they say has long been misunderstood by society. Their call came Tuesday as justices were holding a debate over the constitutional interpretation of a case involving a man from the Puyuma tribe. The man was sentenced to three and a half years in prison after shooting protected animals in 2013. Taipei Fashion Week is here, and it's the first live fashion week in the world this year amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. The culture ministry launched the event, showcasing an autumn-winter collection along the theme of sustainability. At last week's press conference, Taiwanese designers put on a mini-fashion show to preview what's to come. you describe Taiwan in one word, Andrew? One word? <laughs> Can I have 50? Sure, right now. <laughs> How about a book? Um, I would say colorful. Um, colorful is a great word. And not just like colors, but also like sounds and smells and That's flavors. Right. Very vibrant place. It is. I recently spoke with Joshua Samuel Brown. He's a colorful person. Mm -hmm. um, he's the Lonely Planet travel writer for Taiwan. He's a travel expert on Taiwan. He loves Taiwan. He spent many years here. Now he's back in the U.S. and he recently came out with a comedy novel set in Taiwan called Spinning Karma. And I asked him why he wanted to set a comedy in Taiwan. People in Taiwan are very funny. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, from the tourist point of view, it's like, oh, this is a town that has cats in it. That's the thing is you go there, get coffee, and they have a lot of cats there. Or this is a church that is shaped like a glass slipper. Like, I, I've never seen that anywhere else, but Taiwan, have you? Um, you see people, you have garbage trucks that play Beethoven. It's uh, for Elise. You have garbage trucks and recycling trucks that play music. This is not... And to Taiwan, people's like, oh, this is normal. This is just how we, but you don't have that anywhere else. Our garbage trucks don't play music here. I've never heard of any other country where the garbage trucks play music. Um, people in Taiwan generally tend to, and I think this has to do with Buddhism, and this is why I, 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 the subtitle of my book, Spinning Karma, is a Buddhist comedy. This book couldn't take place anywhere else because Buddhism is such an ingrained part of Taiwanese society. And it's also a more joyful kind of Buddhism, a more happy kind of Buddhism. And I'll give you an example. And I've written articles about this. Um, have you ever been to like a temple in Japan, a Shinto temple? No, I haven't. Uh, it's very serious. It's very serious. You go to a Shinto temple in Japan, you walk, you some places you don't take pictures and you, you move and it's very serious. You know, 
in Taiwan, it's a Taiwan. They're cooking up food outside and the aunties are there hanging out because they want to hang out there. People are playing mahjong out there and oh, come on in and look at stuff, take pictures, sure, whatever. There is a certain joyfulness and colorfulness to Taiwan and, and it's intertwined with Taiwanese Buddhism that you don't find in other places. You asked me, why is Taiwan funny? Like, and, you know, I use the word weird in the best way. I know that when I talk to Taiwan people, oh, and Qi has this maybe not good meaning, but what, maybe more, what's the, huh? Quirky. Teach me how to say quirky in Taiwanese. Oh, I don't know. I have to think about that. <laughs> and, and that's why, because Qi Guai has that bad, like, uh, it's a little bit weird, but no. I feel like Kao Pi, like kind of um, fun and playful. Fun and, yes. A little bit naughty, but, you know, I mean, a little bit, not in a bad way, but. Yeah, playful. like a ki- kindergarten kid naughty, not right. like naughty, right. naughty. Okay. Um, th- that's all over the place. And like. You know, when you walk around Portland, which is where I live now, you, people decorate their houses unusually around Christmas and around Halloween. But generally speaking, not all year round. But in Taiwan, people will decorate their spaces and their homes. And I can't tell you how many taxi cabs that I've gotten into. And I literally mean I can't even remember how many where there's something very unusual about this taxi driver. He has all little bobblehead dolls of like... Yeah, like, but that's like an every week occurrence that some taxi driver who's got his taxi cab done in, oh, I really like Godzilla, so I've got a thousand little Godzilla dolls, and enjoy the taxi ride. I'm going to get you from point A to point B, but enjoy my little world for the half an hour that you're in my taxi. There are so many people in Taiwan who want to invite you into their quirky little worlds for a little while, and then when you come out, you're like, wow. That was interesting. I've never had a boring day in Taiwan. And that is, no matter where you go, any town, any city, any village in Taiwan, you will see people like that. You will see places like that. People who make their living spaces an extension of their own very unique vibe. Do you agree that Taiwan can be quirky? Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, I think when you get that many people in such a kind of crowded place and people are bumping up against each other, all the personalities come out. That's true. Yeah. They have to have their own style, right? In mm-hmm. the way they live or do things or in their own taxi. Yeah, you want to be heard above the noise, right? That's true. Uh. And also, he said something really interesting. He mm. said Taiwan is a place where foreigners with a bad childhood can do come for a do-over. A do-over. A do-over for their child. They can be That's immature for a while. <laughs> like teaching English and everybody's still really nice to them and accepts them. Do you, I, I you're do a foreigner. Feel like, do you feel that way? I, I mean, it's hard for me to remember what you I was like. Nice I had a very nice childhood. <laughs> um, but I think that there are a lot of people who are running from something or running uh-huh. towards something. I mean, I think that there's something very interesting about that. Um, but it is a very playful place. It's a right. place where you can kind of be a little bit, uh, not childish, but like... Uh, Childlike, how's that? You can be yourself, and people accept you. Yes, absolutely. So um, he also had a lot of great travel tips, so the whole interview will be up on YouTube and Facebook. Well, Stash is here to tell us about an unforgettable taxi ride. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I took a very special taxi ride, uh, just me and my girlfriend yesterday, uh, with a man called Tu Qingliang, uh, who's probably better known as Taipei's karaoke taxi man. (laughs) So yeah, um, take a look at the video. Arriving half an hour early with five minutes notice, Tu Qingliang is waiting for us outside. Oh, 
We exchange formalities and get straight down to business. He asks what song we want to sing. We've come prepared. This is, after all, Taipei's famous KTV taxi. It's not my best performance, but Tu is unfazed. He's seen it all. He says he's been driving his taxi for 27 years and he's had the karaoke set up for the last six. What gave him the idea? He says it's because he loves to sing, in every language. Tu tells me his English is terrible before breaking into a spontaneous rendition of Ed Sheeran. This taxi driver clearly isn't going to let his customers have all the fun. But the fun and the fame goes both ways with Tu. He claims to have launched the careers of more than a few pop stars and hosted a number of celebrities, including Taiwanese heartthrob Edward Chen. And Tu himself has featured in print and TV media from across the world. It's time for another song. We go for a classic. Mr. I'll make a man out of you. Surely this kind of business attracts some strange characters, I say. But Tu says he can afford to be picky. Most customers come to him. To ride in his taxi, he says, you need to be good-looking and ready to sing. I tell him I'm flattered. We've arrived at our destination, but we can't resist one final song. It's an emotional number, and we're sad to be leaving. Somehow, though, I feel like this won't be the last I see of Tu Qingliang. That is so funny. That's <laughs> so much fun to watch. I mean, how was it for you sitting in the taxi and actually singing? Did it was it weird? Was it just kind of like one of those things that you do because I mean, it's so unusual? Yeah, I don't know. It was it was it was interesting. Um, it didn't feel that different from being in the usual kind of KTV though. Uh, it just kind of felt like you just took it in your stride. I think. I think it was scary when he started to sing, though. He was yeah. singing while yeah. he was driving. This is the thing. I don't understand how he does it because a lot of because I mean the videos you see of me, he's taking that with a selfie stick. No oh, he's way. holding it. Yeah, he's holding oh, it. Oh wow! Yeah, wow, he doesn't wow. have. I mean, surprisingly, you know, given that he's done this for six years, he doesn't have a fixed camera. So I, I imagine he's different from most taxi drivers who are like on the way somewhere, right? They're going as fast as they can to get you there quickly and make some money. For him, it's more about the actual journey. It's all about the journey. Yeah, it's about the friends you make along the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think he is... I mean, it was definitely a really long meandering journey. I mean, I, I, we ended up at somewhere near kind of uh, Taipei Main Station, but I, I, that, I, I chose that fairly arbitrarily, but it took us a long time. We actually ended up circling around <laughs> Taipei Main to get the last song, you know. So yeah. this, <laughs> this is one of those rides where you don't get angry if they take you for a ride. Yeah. Literally <laughs> take them for a ride. Yeah. And, and so he gives, um, he gives a discount as well if you sing, uh -huh. uh, which is oh, part of the kind of drive. I mean, he also says pretty clearly when I was interviewing him that if you don't sing, then he, he doesn't like you and he, won't, yeah. and, he won't, and he won't deliver you to your to your. Location. Oh wow! He'll yeah. bring you somewhere else. <laughs> Maybe yeah, he'll drop you off somewhere else and, and see how you manage with that. But um, but yeah, so he knocked off a bit of the the price for me That's as well. That's nice. Good. Does he pick people up on the street too, or do you have? Yeah, to... so he does. Oh. So he says some people come to him, um, but uh, a lot of the time he just finds people on the street. I mean, That's he's hilarious.
hilarious. Yeah, mm. he's he's quite um, explicit that he goes for only the best looking people. But <laughs> oh wow, yeah. wow, yeah. Well, clearly that's why you got you and your. Well, yeah. I mean, I book, so I, I can't I can't claim that. But I have actually had a, a friend who was. You know, picked up more spontaneously, uh, just walking around with a friend. You know, apparently he pulled up, uh, kind of next to them in his taxi, and said, "Lie, lie, lie, come in, come in." And they were like, "Well, you know, why not? You know, this man's got something going." Not weird at all. Now I'm curious to know, like, so so the difference between this and like a karaoke booth is that actually people can see you. Can they also hear you? Do people on the street they hear what's happening inside the taxi? Yeah, they so they do hear what's going on. <laughs> he, I, I don't know if he has a button or a switch where he, you can turn this on and off, but um, as far as I can tell, most of a lot of the sound is projected outwards. As wow! Well. So I, I'm I'm really sorry to all of the passersby. <laughs> subjected to some of that singing. I know, you sound like a good singer. Thank you. Better than a lot of people. (laughs) So uh, that's fun. Maybe we should do a a future uh, Taiwan Insider. We should try that sometime. Inside it, yeah. So there's uh, one of the quirky things that you will find in Taiwan. Now, coming up in our brain game, uh, I want to bring you to some temples around Taiwan. So, of course, Joshua Samuel Brown, earlier when he was talking about his new book, he said he based a... It was a, what, a Buddhist comedy? A Buddhist and political comedy. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to give you uh, the, the Buddhist angle in our brain game today. Have a look. One of the most unusual places in all of Taiwan is this place. This is a temple dedicated to 17 men and a dog, as you can see there. Now, uh, Natalie, Leslie, I think you both remember we have introduced this temple before. We have. It was so touching, the story. It was very touching. Now, uh, that is just one of the many unusual temples that you can find in Taiwan. There are a lot of fascinating places, lots of quirky things happening there. So today I'm going to ask you about four temples that are very unusual. So on buzzer number one, we have Nali So. Buzzer number two, we have Leslie Liao. Are you ready? All right. First question. There's a temple in Nanto in central Taiwan where the faithful worship a living thing that is more than 700 years old. What is it? A tree? Oops. <laughs> That a is tree? correct. Ooh. You're right. It is a tree. I was going to say giant clam. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie. Good imagination. <laughs> All right, let's have a look at this tree. So this is an old wow, camphor beautiful. tree. Giant tree. And you can wow. see it's uh, actually leaning on something there on the left. They actually call that the tree god's cane. And they will actually worship this tree because it's so old. Oh. It's a giant tree. That, that's huge. <laughs> it's beautiful. A beautiful tree. It is a beautiful tree. They're full of vitality. Mm. Question number two. Many temples in Taiwan are guarded by lions. Now, there's a temple along the northern coast that's guarded by fish. Now, something even more unusual is the whole temple is covered in a very unusual material. What do you think that temple is covered in? <laughs> Leslie. Fish scales. No. Seaweed? Not seaweed. <laughs> You're going in the right direction. Go the... Yes. Oyster shells. Uh, well, I'll give it to you. It is shells and coral. Oh, Giant wow. clam don't fail me now. <laughs> Must look nice. Have a look at this picture. So uh, oh, wow. the reason they did this is because they wanted it to look like an underwater scene for one of the Jade wow. Emperor's disciples who was banished to the bottom of the ocean. That's gorgeous. That's the fish really cool. guarding the temple <laughs> even look like the lions that usually guard the temple. Yeah. Like the tusks. It's the same feeling. It's very creative. Oh. But it's very beautiful. Wow. Um, question number three. Last September, 
devotees from two temples in Lugang in western Taiwan. They climbed to a very beautiful place called Jiaminghu. What did they bring with them? Uh, their, um, their sculpture of Mazu? Yes, that's correct. Have a look at this. So basically, they brought statues of both Mazu and Guanyin, so the goddess of mercy. Uh, Mazu is the goddess of the sea. Mm. It rained the whole way up there, but wow. once they got to the top, the fog lifted, and then they prayed uh, by the side of the river and prayed for an end to COVID-19. That's nice. Wow. Can you imagine bringing that up on your back? That's heavy. <laughs> heavy. It's pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last question. Every year during the Lantern Festival, which just passed, devotees at a temple in Yelio along the northern coast do something very different with their temple statues. What do they do with them? Leslie. Dress them up. They don't dress them up. They make them into lanterns? Nope. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> so this is Yelio, which is right next to the ocean. Uh, what do they do with the statues? Give them a bath in the ocean? They do! <laughs> yes! <laughs> well, the point is they actually jump into the ocean with the palanquins with the statues on them. So they go for a running jump, land in the ocean, and this is basically a, uh, it's sort of like cleaning up the mm. harbor is what they're saying. It's their way of blessing or kind of I guess making the harbor fresh. That's yeah. got to be tough on the eye of the palanquin, though. It's just the, the, the salt water is pretty erosive, I'd imagine. I think they have a makeshift one. Gotcha. I don't think it's the actual gotcha. palanquins and the, the temple statues. Thinking way ahead of me. <laughs> so, those are just some of the quirky things you'll find at temples here in Taiwan. So, a question for the day What is something quirky about Taiwan that you're still not used to, Andrew? All right. I'm going to say dog prams. That's pe people pushing their dogs around in strollers. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm guilty. They totally pamper them. Really? I, I push a dog around. Are you serious? Oh, I, I can't imagine that. I do. Pictures or it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll give you some. I'll give you some. Not on Taiwan Insider, but I'll give you some. What about you, Leslie? Uh, mine is uh, people's over-reliance on horoscopes oh. to evaluate ah. you as a, as a person. You oh, you've gotten that from dates? Well, you can just meet someone for the first time, and you can tell them what your birthday is, and they'll be like, oh my goodness, you're one of those. You're, you're like this, and you're like that. And I'm like, I spoke, told you like one thing about yeah. me. Yeah, as an American, I always think it's, it feels so 70s. Like, it feels like something happened <laughs> in the does, 70s. It does, right? So I'm still not used to that. Don't tell people then. No. <laughs> I've, avoid it, avoid it. So mine is the toilet restaurant. Oh, Have you guys heard of that? Yes. So I did a report on that once. Edible excretions. Mm. So it's like it's like chocolate ice cream, chocolate soft serve, and inside like what looks like a little mini toilet bowl. It also has curry in a toilet bowl, no. and a urinal no, no. with lemonade, all kinds thing. of stuff. It's very popular. It, the food tastes okay too. It's not too bad though. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have been. I've yeah. been there. I can't I make it past the entrance. <laughs> like they have that giant golden toilet out there, and I'm, I can't. I can't. <laughs> so there you go. That is our show about quirky Taiwan. Uh, and we would love to know what you think. Please leave a, a message below and tell us what you think is the quirkiest part of Taiwan. Yes, and uh, subscribe and like us. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Stay quirky. Visit RTI at english.rti.org.tw.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. This week we celebrated International Women's Day, and it was great to hear that the U.S. State Department wants to help Taiwan's female entrepreneurs. The American Institute in Taiwan announced that it has brought its Academy for Women Entrepreneurs, or AWE, program to Taiwan. Today, I talk with AIT Section Chief Diane Sovereign about the program. Sovereign tells us why they decided to bring their AWE program to Taiwan. We're very excited because this is the first time Taiwan has participated in this AWE program. As we know, Taiwan has an extremely developed economy, and it actually has quite a good women's entrepreneurship ecosystem already. So we actually had to make kind of a strong pitch to get Taiwan included <laughs> because, um, you know, we, we are here in an island with a female president with, you know, very strong female leadership in government. A lot of women business owners already thrive here. So why, you know, why should this program come to Taiwan? And it was a Partly good timing because the thing that's different about AWE than the resources already available in Taiwan, and there's lots of resources here for female entrepreneurs, is the English language component. Mm -hmm. So the program, the platform is, is entirely in English. It's based on this, it's called Dream Builder. You could Google Dream Builder. It's, Dream Builder is a female entrepreneurship training program developed by the Thunderbird School in Arizona, the Thunderbird School of Management. So the hook was there were really no English language only training programs for Taiwanese entrepreneurs. And one of the great barriers, I think, for all entrepreneurs is the the lack of opportunities to export. So, oh. so one of the potential barriers for the women entrepreneurs here is a lack of confidence in their English ability mm -hmm. to take their businesses to the next level, to be able to export or to be able to, you know, make partnerships with other entrepreneurs in other countries. So, The English language component, I think, is something that really sets the program apart for Taiwan. And it perfectly falls into the bilingual 2030 initiative of the Taiwanese side. And also, we recently launched an education initiative, the U.S.-Taiwan Education Initiative. And that is aimed at like building up bilingualism in Taiwan and helping to bring more Taiwanese teachers of Mandarin to the U.S. So, All the timing was right, and, and we were really thrilled that AWE was able to launch here. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you'll be able to help female entrepreneurs here uh, connect with the world. Is that yes. right? Yeah. So part of the AWE, and you know, if you, if you look through the um, Dream Builder training, it's not very different than many other trainings available around the world. And um, I think the part that kind of makes it more interesting to Taiwanese female entrepreneurs is the networking opportunities. So we have an alumni database. And so if, if you participate in AWE in Taiwan, you will have access to this alumni database. So AWE has launched in 53 countries, um, over 2,000 participants around the world. I guess by 2020, they're expecting 5,000 participants. So you'll be able to get into that database and say, hmm, I'm interested in you know exporting to Kazakhstan or wherever. And you could look and find, oh, okay, there's a person who participated in AWE in Kazakhstan, and, you know, I'm going to reach out to her. So I think that's one of the unique parts, the, the networking, and then the mentoring part, too. 
because AWE will have 10 trainers, Taiwanese women, but all of them with overseas market experience. So they're mm-hmm. going to do the training uh, and they're going to be, you know, mentoring the participants. And then, the, you know, what you find, as I'm sure you've, you've gone to conferences and things, is the content is interesting, but it's actually the, the friendships you make, the networks you build. So mm-hmm. these 90 participants will be, you know, form their own network, essentially. That sounds so exciting. Now I want to join. <laughs> I know. I was like, the, the, the MOOC is actually pretty good, you know, if you click through the thing. But I was like, oh, gosh, I want to talk to these women because there's so many people that have really interesting ideas, you know. Wow. So oh, what are some of the ideas then? Tell us what you've well, seen. So we haven't actually recruited the 90 participants. We just launched this on Women's Day. So starting today, I think, is that we're putting the open call for participants who want to join, and they're going to have to pitch their ideas. Ah, so they have to sell their ideas to be able to be included in the program. That's right. So Mm -hmm. we're looking for um, people who have experience, so they need about three to five years experience. They don't have to have a successful ongoing concern. They could either have a good idea that they want to launch or be three to five years in on an idea they've already launched, but they do need to have a proven track record as an entrepreneur. The one thing we want to emphasize is that if you've had an entrepreneurial experience and you failed, then you're the right person for this program. That's interesting. Failure should not be a barrier. That you tried and failed means that you probably learned something and now you have a new idea that you want to launch. And what what help do you give them? I mean, that the you had mentioned there's a dream builder training. What's involved with that training? It's um, an online course. And so you'll have, so each of the participants will complete the training on their own time. So at home on their computer, they'll, they'll go through the training and then there'll be required in-person training sessions where the trainers will discuss the module, discuss that as applied to each person's individual business plan and ideas. That's the scope of the program. And oh, it's a six-month program. So what do the courses cover? assumes you already have a concept in your mind and hopefully on paper. So it starts out with you already have your concept. How do you form a business plan? How do you get financing? How do you market? How do you secure your supply chain? Those kinds of steps. Well, that's wonderful. So with your experience working with um, AWE, what have you noticed about the kind of challenges that women face in starting their own businesses? You know, I was just talking to Kathy about this right before we, we got on the phone because at the minimum, um, you know, all entrepreneurs, not just women entrepreneurs, face many of the same challenges. That's true. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> it's not easy um, yeah, to be an entrepreneur. Exactly. So uh, a lot of the problems faced in every country in the world are kind of a, a less developed ecosystem for entrepreneurship Access to financing is difficult. Sometimes there's legal hurdles in terms of licensing, registration. It can be opaque. It can be hard to figure out who you have to talk to to get what license to do what. To be honest, Taiwan is actually ahead of many places on all of those fronts. So I think what's unique to Taiwan and maybe unique to women's entrepreneurs is Taiwan has this wonderful traditional culture, which places a huge emphasis on family, on tending to your children, children's education, looking after your parents. And I think all those things are what make Taiwan a wonderful place to live. And then it has quite a very modern 
business environment. But I think women entrepreneurs find themselves in the middle of these two things, right? On the one Mm -hmm. hand, this place of very strong family values, Mm -hmm. um, which puts kind of a lot of pressure on women to be, you know, a very good mother and a very good daughter and a very good spouse. And yet, at the same time, be expected to be completely modern in business views, right? So then you have to know how to access finance and you have to go in the meeting like just like everybody else. So I think that is kind of unique, maybe not to Taiwan, maybe to Asian culture, which is that women entrepreneurs find themselves in between these two strong social trends, and they have to be good at at all of it. That's true. I can totally relate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right? I know. I talk to reporter friends, and they're like, oh, my God, I have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and, like, you know, feed my baby. Exactly. Feed your baby. (laughs) Then you have to stay till late, late at night to get your filing deadline. So I think this program is not going to solve those issues, but at least it'll give these women a group of other women who are going through the same situation to talk to. So what is your view of Taiwanese women and, and the empowerment of women in Taiwan? When you look at all the data, Taiwan is is way ahead of the world and way ahead even of the region in terms of women in government. So I have some data here, 42% of the LY are women, mm-hmm. that's, you know, puts them at the top internationally of women in positions of government. Obviously, a women president on the small and medium enterprises. I'm looking here. 36% of small and medium enterprises are owned by women. Wow. And as we mentioned, Taiwan has a very developed um, financial sector, and women are part of that. So, you know, if you look at other countries, one of the indexes is who has their own bank account, which seems kind of shocking, but it's true. But 90% of women in Taiwan have their own bank account. They have access to their own individual funds. So I think, you know, Taiwan is, is compared to the rest of the world, doing quite well. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> there's still like, there's a lot, a lot to go because the income gap in Taiwan, I believe in the male-female income disparity is still 14%. So women on average, earn 14% less than men in the exact same jobs. I think in the U.S. it's 18%. In the world as a whole, I believe it's like women still earn 56 cents on the dollar. Oh, wow. <laughs> around That's the terrible. world. It is terrible. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that Taiwan's way ahead of the world and, and many, many other places in this region doesn't mean that there's still not more work to be done, right? Definitely. I, I think we all do feel... There is some patriarchal culture still uh, in society here. And, you know, I'm curious about, because we also have a very strong small to mid-sized company uh, situation in Taiwan. And most of our businesses, about 95%, I think, are small to mid-sized enterprises. So how do you think that influences the entrepreneurial culture here in Taiwan? What we just talked about in terms of pressure on women to, to be excellent at everything, pressure on everyone. I mean, I think there's extreme pressure from kind of a Confucian culture to be quite good at everything. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, but women, I think, do feel it differently um, just because every woman I've talked to here is torn between being good at everything in the family zone Mm -hmm. while at the same time being good at everything in the work zone. And you just, you can't do all of that. That's true. So I think the statistics and the framework are there, but the 
cultural shift is what probably has to happen. You know, and we've seen this, and it takes a long time. You know, the U.S. is behind Taiwan on the statistics. I think the cultural shift has happened a little sooner there where people realize you, you, it's impossible to be amazing at everything. <laughs> right. So we need to uh, take it easy on ourselves. <laughs> I think so. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Do you have any words that you would like to tell uh, aspiring female entrepreneurs? I'm not an entrepreneur myself myself. I'm risk adverse. (laughs) So I think the main thing in my research and, you know, with AWE and discussing topics with different entrepreneurs is the fear of failure is something you cannot have if you want to be a successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, And that failure in a business venture is almost a requirement in the U.S. for any successful entrepreneur. We're looking for people who are risk-embracing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard for me to say that because I'm a risk-adverse person, so right. maybe we need to have a better spokesperson for this <laughs> than me. <laughs> well, I think you're wonderful, Diane, and um, had a lot of nice things to say about women in Taiwan as well. If people are interested in finding more information about your program, where should they look? We are going to be putting up some Facebook posts on our AIT Facebook that will lead you to links. The Ministry of Economic Affairs, I think, on their website will have a link to how to apply to this program. Yeah, and and the AIT website. So if you just Google AIT, American Institute in Taiwan, our website will have links to all the application information. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for you know, giving aspiring female entrepreneurs in Taiwan a helping hand. Sounds like My a great My pleasure. Program. Thank you so much for the interview. That is American Institute in Taiwan Section Chief Diane Sovereign telling us about their Academy for Women Entrepreneurs AWE program, which they just started in Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... Taipei, 1895. In the National Taiwan Museum, a replica of a battered old flag sits behind a glass panel. The right half is missing but the form of a Chinese tiger staring defiantly upward still dominates the banner. At first, it seems a bit strange that this should be one of the museum's three great treasures. The tiger flag only flew over Taiwan for a few days, but it represents powerful ideas, resistance to invasion, and the courage to carry on after the world shows that it has forgotten. There's also another issue. This flag is a replica, 
and the question of whether the original survives is one of the ghosts of this period that hasn't completely left us. Here to tell us more about this flag is National Taiwan Museum researcher Li Ziming. In 1895, the First Sino-Japanese War ended with a Japanese victory. The fighting had been over Korea, but in the final treaty, Taiwan was the war prize, and China was forced to hand it over to Japan. Angry Taiwanese took a radical step. In May, they declared the Republic of Formosa, an independent nation. Very briefly, it had a president, Tang Jingsong. And it had this flag, a yellow tiger on a blue background. Li Ziming says we don't know who designed the flag; only the concept behind it is clear. He says the idea was that by declaring independence, the resistors could claim that Taiwan was not Imperial China's to give away. Though the republic never achieved international recognition, its founders had still hoped that they could convince foreign powers to intervene on their behalf. Of course, to be properly independent, their flag had to be different from Imperial China's, but not too different. After all, we have to remember the republic's founders were men who had served in the government and military of Imperial China. Li Ziming says that dragons and tigers are among the great beasts of Chinese iconography, and whoever designed the flag seized on this. Imperial China's blue dragon on a yellow background was transformed into the Republic of Formosa's yellow tiger on a blue background. The flag might not have been strikingly original, but that doesn't mean it didn't have interesting features. In 2010 to 2011, restoration work on the replica revealed something that surprised researchers. The two sides of the flag are slightly different. No one had noticed because few copies were made, and this replica had been displayed for years like a painting. That is, with the same side facing viewers all that time. On one side, the tiger's eyes are wide. On the other, they appear curved. It's like the eyes of feline creatures at day and at night. A modern flag is a rallying point for a nation. What did Taiwanese of the time make of the republic's flag? Li Ziming says it's hard to be sure, but probably they didn't think much of it. This is especially true given the fact that it was removed so soon after it first flew. We know from records that the flag was paraded through Taipei, and that many people were present for the event. But a few days later, the Japanese military came, spreading panic through the city. One missionary records that a copy of the flag was thrown to the ground, and no one came to pick it up. Its role today, as a symbol of anti-colonial resistance, means that we probably identify with the flag far more than the people of its own time did. Another reason few people identified with the flag is that there don't seem to have been many copies made. Li Ziming says we know there were at least three. We mentioned the one paraded through Taipei. That has vanished into history. A second copy was sent to the northern port at Danshui. This was apparently never flown at all, for what Li Ziming says are very complicated reasons. This flag was eventually taken as a souvenir by American customs official H. B. Morse. There's no trace of that one either. 
What we have is a copy of a third flag that flew in the port town of Keelung. Its battered form and faded colors may have been deliberate, part of a faithful attempt to copy the damaged original. That original was taken to Japan as a spoil of war. But if the flag never meant much to local Taiwanese, why was it treated as a trophy? Li Ziming says it was still an important standard for the enemy, and wanting to capture it was natural. It was sent to an imperial storehouse. He feels that whatever the flag meant to the people who lived beneath it, the desire to display captured enemy flags was still natural. It was a matter of morale, psychology, and symbolism. He says it's understandable that they were treated as trophies. When he describes the originals, I begin to agree with him. These were not flags meant for flagpoles. They were several meters across, clearly meant to be seen from very far away. They were flags meant for battlements, however quickly those battlements were to fall. They must have been an impressive sight, even to a vastly superior enemy. Japanese forces had already taken the Penghu Islands off Taiwan's west coast. They were soon in Taiwan as well, arriving soon after the Republic's proclamation to take their promised prize. Li Ziming says the tiger flag flew for only three or four days. Qilong fell, the president of the Republic fled the island, and Dan Shui and Taipei quickly fell too. Japanese forces subdued the island from north to south, and the final objective, Tainan, fell before November. There was resistance the whole way, of course, but Taiwan would be a Japanese colony for 50 years. What does the flag mean to the Taiwanese people who come to see the replica today? Li Ziming says that resistance to colonization never completely stopped at any point during the 50 years of Japanese rule. He believes this flag is the symbol of the first stage in that resistance, however abortive it may have been. But everything about the flag and its display resonates with something that's hard to put precisely into words. Maybe it's a bit of irony. The National Taiwan Museum began life as the Taiwan Governor Museum, under Japanese rule. The museum building, and even the park that surrounds it, are relics of Japanese colonization. And what about the replica of the flag from Keelung that's supposed to represent Taiwanese resistance? That was made in 1909 by Japanese painter Takahashi Unte, and it was commissioned by the Taiwan Governor General's Office, the colonial government. In other words, what we have is a colonial piece in a colonial exhibition space. Does the original survive? That is an extremely touchy question. According to Li Ziming, the flag taken from Keelung was placed in an imperial storehouse called the Xintenfu. He says the Xintenfu is a mysterious institution with an even murkier fate. It's definitely not the sort of place that's open to the public like a museum. He says the official response to questions about the flag's whereabouts has always been the same. Those who ask are always told that the storehouse burned down after the war. But Li Ziming says that Taiwanese scholars aren't so sure. 
He's even heard of someone who found a building standing on the original site of the Shintenfu using Google Maps. While that might just be a rumor, he says that the majority of Taiwan scholars tend to believe that the chances the flag has survived are greater than the chances it's been destroyed. Of course, no one in Taiwan can say for sure. It's certainly not a pressing issue in Taiwan-Japan relations. But still, the flag is more than just a curiosity. It's a reminder of a crucial point in Taiwan's history and the way that Taiwan's people reacted to it. After that flag fell, things were never going to be the same again in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. Well, Stash is here to tell us about an unforgettable taxi ride. Tell yep, us about I am. it. Yeah, so I took a very special taxi ride, uh, just me and my girlfriend yesterday, uh, with a man called Tu Qingyan, uh, who's probably better known as Taipei's karaoke taxi man. <laughs> so yeah, um, take a look at the video. Arriving half an hour early with five minutes notice, Tu Qingyan is waiting for us outside. Oh, we exchange formalities and get straight down to business. He asks what song we want to sing. We've come prepared. This is, after all, Taipei's famous KTV taxi. It's not my best performance. But Tu is unfazed. He's seen it all. He says he's been driving his taxi for 27 years and he's had the karaoke set up for the last six. What gave him the idea? He says it's because he loves to sing, in every language. <laughs> tu tells me his English is terrible before breaking into a spontaneous rendition of Ed Sheeran. This taxi driver clearly isn't going to let his customers have all the fun. But the fun and the fame goes both ways with Tu. He claims to have launched the careers of more than a few pop stars and hosted a number of celebrities, including Taiwanese heartthrob Edward Chen. And Tu himself has featured in print and TV media from across the world. It's time for another song. We go for a classic. Mr. I'll make a man out of you. Surely this kind of business attracts some strange characters, I say. But Tu says he can afford to be picky. Most customers come to him. To ride in his taxi, he says, you need to be good-looking and ready to sing. I tell him I'm flattered. We've arrived at our destination, but we can't resist one final song. It's an emotional number, and we're sad to be leaving. Somehow, though, I feel like this won't be the last I see of Tu Qingliang. That is so funny. That's <laughs> so much fun to watch. I mean, how was it for you sitting in the taxi and actually singing? Did it was it weird? Was it just kind of like one of those things that you do because I mean, it's so unusual? Yeah, I don't know. It was it was it was interesting. Um, I didn't feel that different from being in the usual kind of KTV though. Uh, it just kind of felt like you just took it in your stride. I think. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.